Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today I thought we might pass a little judgment. No, just kidding. I wanted to put up the page for judgment because I think it's a fantastic game. And the next generation has a new 60 frames per second mode for it. But also this little blue button has a story to tell. That button says buy. But are you actually buying a game when you purchase it from a place like the Microsoft Store or the PlayStation Network or online on Switch or perhaps on Steam where they are selling for purchase things like Train Simulator, as you can see here? Well, a recent lawsuit that has actually advanced past the summary dismissal stage suggests that that's in fact a fraudulent statement to say buy or to say purchase. As ours technical reports, Apple sued for terminating an account with $25,000 worth of apps and videos. Lawsuits claim people don't truly own content they purchase on digital platforms. Now, that's an interesting subheading because I think everybody in virtual legality and really that purchases digital content in any capacity understands that there are limitations on that ownership. We've talked about it time and time again. You don't actually own the content you purchase on a digital storefront. In fact, these lawsuits say something a little bit differently. That yes, that might be known, but the advertising through the purchase button, through the buy button, is in effect fraudulent, or at least deceptive. As The Hollywood Reporter reports, Apple must face lawsuit for telling consumers they can quote unquote, buy movies and TV shows. And this is an area of some contention that a lot of commenters have come into this space and talked to me about, and certainly, it goes without saying here in virtual legality that we talk a lot about the terms of service, the terms and conditions. Here are the Microsoft terms of sale that govern what it is that you are purchasing when you hit that buy button. Or as Microsoft says right here in section 12 of that terms of sale document, software and other digital content made available through the store is licensed and not sold to you. Now, I'm a corporate lawyer. I understand terms and conditions. We talk a lot about how the black and white words in a terms document can govern what it is you can and can't do with something that you've purchased. But I have to admit that even from that perspective, I have always thought that this concept, that it's licensed, not sold, which is accurate, and that's what you want to say if you're giving software rights away, doesn't really match up very well with the notion of the word buy or purchase. Because a consumer that isn't thinking about what it is that's happening here behind the scenes says, I'm going to hit this buy button. And then the terms of service that actually apply to that purchase say it's not sold. I bought it, but it's not sold. Now, the lawyer in me says, yes, you didn't buy judgment. What you bought was a perpetual license to judgment. Or if in another context, as is talked about in this lawsuit, there's a rental feature. Here is a blown up version of the Voodoo uh, video service rental and purchase features. Then what we're really talking about from a legal perspective is that you can buy a temporary license for 30 days or 48 hours or whatever it might be, depending on the service, or you can buy a perpetual license. But even in a perpetual license framework, you're still subject to restrictions. You still can't play Wonder Woman 84 on a theater of your choosing and charge for the people entering with a license that you purchased from Voodoo. That's an entirely different licensing model that the studios use for you to sell seats to. And you still have to lose the rights to that access if you were to lose your rights to your Voodoo account, say, or your Apple account, or your Steam account. 
So when we talk about these things, I do think that the word buy is needlessly confusing for what's happening here. You're buying a license. You're not buying the content, but that's a little bit too thinly sliced, I think, for non-lawyers that are out there. So this lawsuit actually rings pretty true to me that buy but not sold was always somewhat of a bridge too far for logic. And in fact, if you go and you look at the Microsoft Terms of Service, they double up on this, right? Microsoft may stop distributing any digital good or add to or reduce the capabilities for any digital good at any time, even after you've purchased a license to it. You may lose access to or capabilities of digital goods or have the nature of your access changed if a number of things you can do that are bad. Also, if we cancel or terminate the applicable service or cease supporting the applicable device or we lose our rights to continue to distribute the digital good to you or to distribute it to you in the same manner. You purchased a license through a third party, whether it's Microsoft or Valve or Sony or Nintendo. And if some way, somehow, they lose the rights to continue to convey that to you, you're not gonna be able to download it anymore. You're not gonna be able to have the ability to grab these things off the online service of your choosing anymore. And the same goes for Steam right? Valve hereby grants and you accept a non-exclusive license and right to use the content. This license ends upon termination of this agreement. If we kick you off of Steam or other reasons or the subscription, which is the fancy way that Valve talks about this same kind of content delivery mechanism. If the subscription that includes the license is lost to Valve, they can't convey it any longer. That's how these things work. Now, behind the scenes, Valve is working to make sure that their contracts are up to speed with all these various developers and publishers so that if there is some kind of issue, you can continue to download your thing off of Steam and the same goes for Xbox and PlayStation and everyone else. But sometimes those things just fail. Voodoo is a service I like to use and I think they have a very good one, but sometimes I will have purchased a movie and it's just gone. And you can go on their Twitter and you can talk to them on social media and they say, yeah, we had a rights issue here and they'll probably offer you a credit to buy something else. Uh, But these things can happen in the digital world. And certainly it's something to keep your eye on if you're concerned with especially legacy and preservation of your video games. If any of this sounds familiar to you, if you've been in virtual legality for a while, you might recognize it as a topic of discussion pretty early on in virtual legality that I had in respect of an Accursed Farms video that claimed that games as a service was fraud. Now, that focus was really on things like Destiny, turning off servers, changing things uh, uh, in a live service avenue that prevent you from playing them as they used to be. And I did a video, which is very, very long. I used to do slightly longer videos here in Virtually Gathered. I think it's almost two hours long that talks about the nature of contracts, of how when you agree to those terms and conditions, in the United States at least, most courts are going to enforce them against you as if you actually had read them, even though we know in the real world that that often isn't the case, but that it's not fraud because they are putting right there in words that they can turn off the service, or as Microsoft said, that they can change the goods on you even after you've purchased them, or that they just won't deliver them anymore if they suddenly lose the license rights, that you as a consumer in the United States, I will qualify because other jurisdictions are a little bit more uh, circumspect about language in and user license agreements like this, that in the United States, you're usually held to account for those kinds of things. And I had a conversation with the Cursed Farms on this, and I think they're both pretty fruitful discussions about what it means to have contract language and what fraud is. And so I highly recommend checking them out if you are interested. But the weakest point of the fraud kind of conversation in my mind has always been that buy button. 
because I don't think that people fully understand that when you hit buy, even if it says, yes, I agree to be subject to the terms and conditions, some of which they never, they don't point you to, that you don't incorporate in your head that language that says, oh, whoa, whoa, you bought it, but we didn't sell it to you because what you bought was a license and not the underlying content, which is where this lawsuit comes up. Now, this lawsuit has not yet come to fruition. I suspect it won't. What it did was it defeated the Apple attempt to get it kicked out of court. We talk in virtual reality a lot about the fact that anybody can sue anyone on earth, but a lot of those lawsuits could be kicked out at a very early stage for essentially failing to state a claim under the law. And that's what Apple attempted to do here was to say, hey, judge, your honor, they didn't state something that is actually a legally recognizable offense that we should owe money for, that we should be enjoined from doing. And what the court did here, and we're going to talk about why, we're going to look at the actual language used in this order, you say, nope, they got close enough. They alleged enough facts that you should have to go to trial on this. And once this hurdle is cleared, very often, well, that's when the settlement discussions proceed in earnest. The defendant tries to get it kicked out. If they fail at that, then they will try to settle this because the injunction here would be, if it were if it were one, to have Apple not be allowed to use rent and buy as two different things on their menu screen. And in fact, as part of a settlement, that might be what winds up happening anyway, because throughout all these stores, every digital storefront that I'm familiar with uses the kind of buy concept. You could have a lawsuit like this brought up against you. So let's see exactly what the court had to say. Apple's iTunes applications allow consumers to quote unquote rent or quote unquote buy movies, television shows, music, and other content. If the consumer desires to quote unquote rent a movie, Apple advertises that for a fee of around $5.99, the consumer will have access to the movie for 30 days and then for 48 hours after the consumer first starts to watch it. For a higher fee of around $19.99, Apple offers consumers the option to quote unquote buy the content. When a consumer opts to buy the content, it then appears in their purchased folder. And you see all the quotes here because they are important. This is essentially a false advertising marketing type complaint. And the court properly notes that that's what's at issue here. The plaintiff argues that this labeling is deceptive as the use of a buy button and representation that content has been purchased leads consumers to believe their access cannot be revoked. Plaintiff alleges this is untrue as Apple reserves the right to terminate the consumer's access and use of content at any time, and in fact, has done so on numerous occasions. In fact, if we go and we look at the Apple terms here, it says, hey, you may be able to re-download previously acquired content to your devices if they're signed in with the same Apple ID, but also note, content may not be available for re-download if that content is no longer offered on our services. I would be willing to bet that more than one of the people watching this very video didn't realize that Apple has language in here that says, yo, if we lose rights to it, you might not ever have it again, but thank you very much for your $20. And of course they have the language we now expect from a document of this, just a little bit of scrolling. Apps made available through the app store are licensed, not sold to you and subject to all of the rest of this stuff. You can't reverse engineer it. You can't do all these other things that Ultimately, I don't think a lot of us uh, begrudge the uh, license providers from restricting us from doing, but still worth noting that you license something, you have other rules applied to that license, when if you owned something, 
those rules wouldn't really apply. Now, it's also worth noting that Apple kind of trips on its own feet in a couple of places. Like I said, lawyers are humans too. When they say, hey, it's licensed, not sold, it's kind of odd that in the immediately precedent section, they say some apps may be sold together. You didn't mean to say that, lawyer. You want to you wanna correct this over at Apple. It's all right. It happens. But it does make it more difficult when you're in a lawsuit like this one that Apple itself, in their own terms of service, refers to things being sold. It's not just marketing. That's maybe a bit of a problem. So the main contention here is that this plaintiff says, hey, consumers believe that their access can't be revoked. And the main issue that I would have with it is that I think most sophisticated consumers on iTunes or on Xbox or PlayStation understand uh, that if you were to go out and, as I said, put it in a movie theater and try to sell seats to it, that your access could be revoked. You would lose the rights to your account and that you would lose all those rights associated with Apple. And I don't think that would surprise anybody, but that's the main contention. Now we talk about 12b6. This is the summary dismissal kind of portion. It says a rule 12b6 motion challenges the complaint as not alleging sufficient facts to state a claim for relief. To survive a motion to dismiss, a complaint must contain sufficient factual matter, except it is true, to state a claim for relief that is plausible on its face. So the court looks at what the plaintiff has alleged as a complaint assumes that everything there is true. There are no factual disputes at this level. It's just a matter of if this person was just going to win everything that they have claimed, does the law actually have something to do in this particular case? So it's very pro-complaint oriented. We don't want to kick out potential lawsuits that aren't deserving of being kicked out, but there are still issues with a lot of complaints that you can kick out relatively easily under this rule. The injury the plaintiff asserts is that he spent money purchasing the content that he wouldn't have otherwise as a result of Apple's misrepresentation. And this occurred at the time of purchase. Apple was trying to get this kicked out by saying there wasn't actually an injury here because we don't know what will happen in the future. And essentially what this plaintiff wound up saying was, no, no, if I had known what was buried in those terms of service, I wouldn't have paid $20 to quote unquote purchase this item. Maybe it's only worth $10 to me. And so I was deceived and you earned an extra $10. The court ultimately says, yeah, that that meets the standard. In a false advertising case, plaintiffs meet this requirement if they show that by relying on a misrepresentation on a product label, they paid more for a product than they otherwise would have paid or bought it when they otherwise would not have done so. And we scroll past a little bit more standing information here to get to the ultimate substance of what's being discussed. Rule 9B, federal rule, provides that in alleging a fraud or a mistake, a party must state with particularity the circumstances constituting that fraud or mistake. Malice, intent, knowledge, and other conditions of a person's mind may be alleged generally, right? A fraud claim requires a certain intent on one party's behalf against the other. It's one of the things that we talked about in that earlier video series uh, that I recommended. Claims alleging violations of the FAL, CLRA and UCL that are based on fraudulent conduct must satisfy Rule 9B. And I skipped the descriptions of those. Those are all California acts that kind of cover deceptive advertising and unfair practices in slightly different ways. This is brought under California law. California often has laws uh, that are a little bit more generous to the consumer in terms of contract reading than other jurisdictions. Uh, Probably one of the reasons why it was brought here. I think also that because Apple's located there, it might be the easiest place to bring the case as well. In a deceptive advertising case, Rule 9b requires that the plaintiff or plaintiffs identify specific advertisements and promotional materials 
allege when the plaintiff or plaintiffs were exposed to those materials and explain how such materials were false or misleading. And here the court says plaintiff has done this. Here, plaintiff has identified specific promotional materials. Specifically, he alleges that consumers are given the option to buy digital content in a variety of ways via smartphone, computer, or tablet through the iTunes app or on Apple TV. Plaintiff has also explained how such materials are false or misleading, as he notes that reasonable consumers, we'll get back to that, expect buying the content means access cannot be revoked. However, he explains how this is untrue as Apple reserves the right to terminate the consumer's access and use at any time. And while Apple contends plaintiff has not alleged he bought a movie or acted on the buy representation, he has. Had plaintiff and class members known the truth, they would not have, quote unquote, bought the digital content from defendant or would have paid substantially less for it. Defendant has violated the CLRA by representing that the digital content it sold to plaintiff and the class had been purchased. And then we get another discussion of when, for purposes of certifying a class, when this happened. And the court says, hey, since it was saying buy and purchase the entire time, that the class is alleged this doesn't represent a problem for certification or standing as well. Plaintiff has pled his claims with enough specificity to satisfy Rule 9b, which brings up the secondary concern, right? We've gotten past the federal rule that you've alleged with specificity what marketing we're talking about. It said buy. I don't think buy is terribly useful. I think it's deceptive. I think it's potentially fraudulent. Court says, yep, okay, we buy that part. But then when we talk about these California laws, we have to talk about what a consumer actually thinks. California's UCL prohibits any unlawful, unfair, or fraudulent business act or practice and unfair, deceptive, untrue, or misleading advertising. California's FAL then prohibits any untrue or misleading advertising. And then California's CLRA prohibits unfair methods of competition and unfair or deceptive acts or practices. That's the one we see added to all the California court cases that we've looked at in virtual legality because if somebody's doing something illegal, it's also unfair and deceptive. So toss that one on there. You're going to get it if you otherwise win the rest of your claims. But California law has all of these different protections for deceptive advertising, but you still have to hit this reasonable consumer standard. Under the UCL, FAL, and CLRA, conduct is deceptive or misleading if it is likely to deceive a quote-unquote reasonable consumer. Under that standard, plaintiffs must show that members of the public are likely to be deceived. The threshold for this is higher than a mere possibility that the label might conceivably be misunderstood likely to be deceived is what we're looking at in the ultimate court case. Instead, the reasonable consumer standard necessitates a likelihood that a significant portion of the general consuming public or of targeted consumers acting reasonably in the circumstances could be misled. But here's where the rubber hits the road. At this particular juncture of the case, California courts have recognized that whether a business practice is deceptive will usually be a question of fact, not appropriate for decision on demurrer. Only in rare situations is granting a motion to dismiss on this basis appropriate. Said another way, the baseline rule in California is when we're looking at something at a 12B5 level where the plaintiff would get kicked out of court, then we don't assume against the plaintiff on something like being misled on a reasonable consumer level. We actually try that to see whether or not that fact holds up. Apple argues against it, by saying that plaintiff has failed to state a claim entirely because he mischaracterizes the buy and purchase language and views it in an unreasonable manner. Apple contends that no reasonable consumer would believe that purchased content would remain on the iTunes platform indefinitely. And that is, as even we can see here, a question of fact. 
Apple says no reasonable consumer. He says, hey, reasonable consumers believe this. That's the kind of thing that does survive a motion like this because it's the kind of thing that has to go and be decided at a trial level. The court actually jumps in a little bit, though, on plaintiff's behalf and says, well, in common usage, the term buy means to acquire possession over something. It seems plausible, at least at the motion to dismiss stage, that reasonable consumers would expect their access couldn't be revoked. And again, the important part here from a lawyer's perspective is that the language in the terms of service is actually correct, that you're getting a license and the difference is whether or not you're buying a permanent license or you're buying a temporary license. But I also acknowledge that that is separate from what buy and rent seems to suggest on the main page. So this is a very interesting case from my perspective. Apple also argues that because a user can download purchase content for full and irrevocable access, the buy and purchase language is accurate. Said another way, Apple actually allows you to download what they're talking about. And so once you've downloaded it, then buy and purchase seems to be okay. There is a component, as we've talked about with respect to video games, however, that says, do I get when I buy or purchase something the right to go and grab it whenever I need? And that becomes a lot more important when we're talking about something like the PlayStation 5, where with its 600 available gigs of memory, you're basically constantly rotating modern video games because they can't all fit on what has actually been provided by the console manufacturer. So while Apple is the one under fire here, as I pointed out at the top of this video, video game folks should be paying a lot of attention to this entire sequence of events. Then I skip some other stuff. They talk about equitable versus monetary claims, etc., etc. But that is the crux of the case brought up now. So I guess one thing that I would ask of you, if you've watched this through in virtual legality, is what do you think? Do you think something like a buy button versus a rent button is deceptive on its face? Do you, as a sophisticated consumer of video games, music, and movies, and everything else, understand that if one of these companies were to, for instance, just go under, that you obviously wouldn't have access to the licenses that you'd otherwise purchased on those services, even if those licenses were quote unquote purchased. And if you didn't know that, do you know that now? And does that change anything as well? One of the things that goes with deceptive advertising, of course, is what people know. What does a reasonable consumer understand in the market? And as these lawsuits kind of filter through, as these stories filter through, people will understand what the buy button means and what it doesn't mean, right? It's licensed, not sold to you. I suspect a lot of video gamers understand that that is built into the terms of service. They might not understand what it functionally means, but they know that licensed, not sold is something that goes around from everywhere, from Microsoft to PlayStation to Steam and elsewhere. So one question will be, what do you think of it? The other question will be, what should happen? If Apple and this plaintiff settle, or if it goes to trial and Apple loses, what should occur? And I think ultimately what would happen is you got a button like this, and instead of saying rent and buy, it'll say temporary license and perpetual license with little stars and a star that says subject to restrictions contained in the terms of conditions. And that's what this winds up looking like. And I guess the question from a practical perspective is, is that better? Is that a better world? Are people really on the ground getting deceived by this kind of concept such that we have to legalize these kinds of buttons into temporary license and perpetual license subject to restrictions? Are we actually happier uh, with that result? And I think it's worthwhile a conversation and a thought experiment, certainly, because I do think it's a big deal that this passed muster on 12b5, California, a little bit more lenient on contract terms. And because so many cases settle, it will be interesting to see what ultimately Apple winds up doing with this, because if there's any value from a marketing perspective of being able to say buy or purchase, 
it might be value that's going away pretty darn soon. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you enjoyed this. We're talking about the business and law of video games, music, movies, television, pop culture, and big technology all the time. We've got a Patreon, Streamlabs, and a store. Please do check them out. Otherwise, just subscribe, ring the bell, leave comments, leave upvotes, downvotes, everything else that can help Google and YouTube understand that we're out here having these conversations. And most importantly of all, tell your friends. Tell your friends that we're out here. Help us get the message out uh, even better than Google and YouTube can. I certainly appreciate every single little bit of help. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Thank you.